All right. We have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. We're going to be joined by Red Sox reporter Ian Brown. So let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Side Retired, the MLB podcast. It's Dylan Campione here and we're joined by Red Sox reporter for MLB.com. Been a beat reporter for them for 20 years now at this point. Ian, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be on with you guys. Absolutely. So one of the main questions we love to ask our guys when they first come onto the podcast is sort of what's it like covering the team that you're doing? And obviously you've been with the Red Sox for a handful of years now at this point. So what's it like being a Boston reporter and dealing with the Red Sox? Yeah, no, it's a great job. Look, it's always changing. And uh, look, I, I started this job in 2002. So I just completed my 22nd year of covering the Red Sox. Um, if you could have told me when I was a kid that uh, I was going to be covering the Red Sox for 22 years, it was exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I would have been pretty happy. Um, so it's been a great ride. I've seen a lot of the Red Sox do a lot of great things. I've seen the Red Sox do a lot of bad things. Um <laughs> I've seen it all, man. 22 years, I've seen this team do every conceivable thing you could do, good or bad. It's been, I guess it's it's been a roller coaster ride. It really has. Um, but wouldn't wouldn't trade it for every anything. Uh, it keeps things interesting. And looking forward to year 23 um, with another new uh, head of baseball operations here in Craig Breslow and seeing uh, kind of what the future brings uh, after a couple of really down years. Absolutely. And that was one of the questions, unfortunately, co-host James feeling a little under the weather, so he didn't join us today. But he said one of the big questions he wanted to ask you was a lot of the reporters we've had on, whether it's a Yankees reporter who's experienced a lot of success over the last 10 years, or if it's someone like a Pirates reporter who's had a lot of down seasons over the last handful of years. But you've, as you mentioned, the highs of 2004 to a lot of last place finishes to all of a sudden the worst to first. So what is that like slash is it a different type of reporting when obviously the team's on a hundred win pace versus when it's a slow summer and you're just trying to get to the end? Yeah. Um, it really, the slow summers where you're just trying to get to the end, um, really make you appreciate, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the good years. And I mean, what this year, what people forget about this year was it wasn't completely terrible until like late August, because I mean, they were uh, what I, what I like to call, uh, I say, just give me the illusion of contention. Like, so you're like, have a foot in. I mean, I remember they were, uh, you know, they were something like two and a half back um, during that Dodger series um, when Mookie came to, came to town and started, sort of stole the show in uh, in late August there. And that was the, the last weekend in August. And um, right then you're thinking, oh, maybe they can, they can find a way to, to sneak in here and, and, and finish, you know, they had, at that point they had, uh, they had sale back, they had Whitlock and Hauk uh, back, and it looked like they were getting healthy. They had Trevor Story back, so you thought maybe they could make a run. And then um, what happened was the Astros came to town and just thrashed them uh, three games in a row. And I don't know if you remember with the whole uh, Kyle Baraclough game where Alex Cora, um, Duvall hit a home run to give them a lead in that first Astros game, and it's the fifth inning and I think he had brought in, uh, it's either the fifth or sixth inning, he brought in Barraclough to get an out or two the inning before. And he comes back with Barraclough, and he just gets shelled, and he stayed in for the rest of the night, and Cora was like, look, I got nobody left in the bullpen. <laughs> so it was a high-wire act. 
Um, the Red Sox were able to, with their two or three man rotation, they were able to get through in July because Cora had a saying that Mondays and Thursdays were good to them, meaning they had a lot of days off. Um, so they were able to start. He really did a great job. Cora did piecing together his pitching in July. Pavetta had a lot to do with that. Um, but then in August, they just couldn't hide anymore. They didn't have enough pitching and their pitching just got beaten down. And then <laughs> by the time the pitching started straightening out a little bit in September, um, that was when the hitting went down. And then we saw Hein Bloom get fired. So it was really only, it was about, a, it was about five weeks that were just really uh, kind of tough. Um, so there's been other years that have been worse, like 2014, 2012. Um, but, uh, yeah, last year, that's definitely the ending was very depressing last year. And just to have the season ending with, um, Tim Wakefield dying on the last day of the, the regular season, it was just, uh, it was kind of a surreal, surreal feeling walking out of Camden Yards, um, with that kind of feeling, not only was it a terrible season, but you lose an icon to just like this, uh, unforeseen tragedy so uh yeah it was uh it was definitely one of the one of the tougher years covering the Sox absolutely and then you did just mention the name Alex Cora and obviously in your years with the Red Sox you've had a multitude of different managers come in whether it's Terry Francona John Farrell Alex Cora there's the random year of Bobby Valentine in there as well so what is it like dealing with a manager and whether it's on the day-to-day getting to know a different personality obviously I assume some managers are different in comparison to others. So what's that sort of like of building a reputation or repertoire with these guys that you deal with? Yeah, no, it is interesting. I got lucky. Well, actually, Tito was my uh, second manager. I covered, uh, I had Grady Little for a couple of years and he he was a pretty good guy too. But um, uh, Alex Gore is, um, the dynamic with him really, um, he might be, as far as how he deals with the media, he might be the most well-rounded out of all of them because um, what fascinates me about Alex is his demeanor doesn't really change. Um, win or lose, hot streak, cold streak. Um, he's a he's a he's a good guy. He has things in perspective, and he knows how the market works. Um, he knows what the uh, what the organization is trying to accomplish at different times. And I just find him to be really a pleasure to deal with on a daily basis because he is consistent and every single Red Sox manager we've had just about um, there's just certain times of the season where they sort of, you see them sort of take their, their mood out on the media a little bit. Um, And I've never seen this guy do this really. Um, So I really like covering Alex Cora to tell you the truth. I think he's a smart guy. He gives great answers. He has a great understanding of baseball um, the whole cheating scandal he was in, he was very accountable about that. He owned it. He didn't try to hide from it. So uh, a lot of respect for Alex Cora, um, the way he handles the market. I think now he just needs to get a little more uh, consistency with the win-loss column because uh, you know his trajectory has been a little up and down, not necessarily his own fault because um, some of these rosters he had the last couple of years, I don't know um, who could have won, <laughs> you know, won with these teams. <laughs> So I think over um, the one, I'd say the one year that Cora kind of, you could say it was disappointing for him as a manager is probably 2019 coming off the championship. I think they should have done more um, with that team and maybe they just took the wrong approach going into that year. But um, other than that, I think Alex Cora has generally um, gotten um, what he's supposed to out of these teams in 2021. I think he got probably more than he was supposed to out of that team. So I think uh, he's done a really good job in the time he's been there. 
Absolutely. I guess going along with Alex Cora, one of the probably more interesting times that you've had as a manager is definitely that period where it was like, is he fired? Is he not fired? What's yeah. happened with the cheating scandal? So what was covering that whole experience like? And then are there also any other things that sort of jump out in your mind from your tenure covering the team of, oh, yeah, that was a really weird slash interesting time to cover. Yeah, that was, um, you know, now that you mentioned that was maybe the strangest couple of days <laughs> when, you know, we found out that uh, we found out that Alex, his involvement in the Houston thing um, and the MLB, um, I think what they did, they suspended A.J. Hinch and they suspended um, Jeff Loonhow and the Astros immediately fired those two guys. And MLB just kind of left Alex Cora hanging in the weeds because they said, oh, well, there's all, we're also doing an investigation on the 2018 Red Sox. So we're not going to know um, his fate until um, that investigation's done. So a couple of days, we didn't know what was going to happen with Alex. And then they just kind of call us together for this press conference, which, by the way, the, the day before, it was like the day or two before the uh, winter weekend, the team's winter weekend event in Springfield, which is supposed to be like the rah-rah um, <laughs> fan fest type of thing. And we find out Alex Cora is gone from the Red Sox. We don't know at this point um, that he's going to be back. We had no idea he would come back and manage the team. I always suspected he might, but, um, you know, you just didn't know it was going to happen. So that was weird because, you know, this was a guy, he seemed like born to manage the Red Sox. And mm -hmm. you, you didn't know what was going to happen to him. And then um, we go to spring training and, you know, they named Ron Rennick. They trade Mookie Betts you know, the, the day spring training starts. And then the next day, I think they hired Ron Renneke as the manager. And, uh, you know, I think at that point, uh, you just didn't know what was going to happen. Alex's suspension still hadn't been uh, handed down yet from the league. So you didn't know what was going on. And then, oh, by the way, then a few weeks later, we're in a, a global pandemic. So, yeah, what are, yeah, 2020, I would say, out of all <laughs> the years um, I've been doing this, factoring in all this Alex Cora stuff, with a global pandemic, uh, Bloom's first year, uh, terrible baseball team, Chris Sale and Eduardo Rodriguez not throwing a single pitch uh, for this depressing 60-game season they had. That was, when I think back, that's the most depressing year I ever had uh, covering the Red Sox. Going into an empty Fenway Park, I think I covered <laughs> every home game that year, um, all 30 home games in that 60-game season, and uh, the ballpark was empty. I, I, I would park right in front of the ballpark. You know, 10 minutes before game time because we didn't have any clubhouse access and we were doing um, all the interviews on zoom with the players. And it was just really um, kind of sterile, I guess it was just a really, it was a really weird time uh, to cover the team. I think it was a weird year in baseball altogether, but especially for the Red Sox who were terrible and just some of the pitchers they were trotting out there, <laughs> um, Robert Stock and Zach Godley and uh, you know, on and on these, 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 um, these names uh what was the guy matt hall uh <laughs> jeffrey springs the one guy who turned into something but we thought he was kind of just anonymous kind of what is he doing there um weber uh uh ryan weber just like a collection of just like why you know i can't believe these guys are from the major leagues just some of the guys <laughs> we covered that year because they had um they had no pitching mm -hmm. you know um, so it was just that that was that was a weird year that I'd like to forget. So that was a lot worse, even though it was only 60 games. It felt like a lot longer <laughs> than 60 games. No, absolutely. And then sort of to flip the switch, though, you've covered 04, 07, 13 and 18. If you had to pick, I assume 04 probably is a special place in there is like finally breaking that curse. But what were those yeah. years like covering those World Series championships? 
I almost lump um, 03 and 04 together mm-hmm. uh, because it was such an exciting time to be around the team. And the buzz around the Red Sox was never higher than it was in um, 2003 and in 2004 because you're just waiting for them to finally break through and win that world championship. And then, you know, Theo Epstein comes in and he just brought, you know, this brash 28 year old kid who grew up a mile from Fenway park. Um, he just brought in so much excitement and they had these guys, uh, this core of guys under Dan Duquette who couldn't quite get it done in uh, Pedro Martinez, and Omar Garcia para and uh, Manny Ramirez and Jason Veritek and, and Tim Wakefield and Derek Lowe and this whole group they had they just couldn't quite get over the hump and um theo came in and just kind of um and so he didn't blow anything blow anything up you know he kept these guys there until well until 2004 when he traded no more uh that, that was blowing things up a little bit but he just kind of added guys who were great fits he added um billy miller and kevin millar um in 2003 um and they had added johnny damon the year before he even got there so he just kind of added uh, sort of core guys that just made this team a lot tougher, a lot mentally tougher. And even in 2003, though, that was a team that felt they could go toe-to-toe with the Yankees. And they, um, so I'll never forget this. They played, um, they played 19 times in the regular season, and I think the Yankees won uh, 10 out of the 19 games. Hmm. And then they played in the playoffs, and the Yankees won uh, – the Yankees – won the series. So I think they wound up somehow it wound up that they were third. I think they were 13 and 13. The 20, so maybe the Red Sox won the season series. Um, but they they won they wound up 13 and 13 in those 26 games that year um that they played and just like a just the rivalry um had never been at a higher peak than it was that year. And these teams, you know, you remember the Pedro Don Zimmer thing and the next year you had the the um the Veritek and A-Rod thing, and then you bring in Kurt Schilling. That really took the whole thing to another level. Um, Thanksgiving 2003, when um the Red Sox had a bunch of guys who thought they could beat the Yankees. Um, November of 2003, Theo Epstein actually brought in a guy who had beaten the Yankees. Yeah. And Kurt Schilling. This guy had done it um with the Diamondbacks, with Randy Johnson. They slayed the Yankees who were coming off. Uh, three repeat of World Series at the time. So just Schilling brought sort of a bravado um, to a team that already had a lot of swag, even after the tough loss to the Yankees in Game 7 of 03 with the unfortunate uh, Grady Little um, leaving Pedro Martinez in too long. And then you bring in Terry Francona, another sort of missing piece in that uh, 04 season. And it was just a perfect blend of guys. And then, um, you know, you think this is going to be their year. And then you know May through May through um, from the beginning of May through the end of July they were a 500 team. People forget that they had a good April, but then they played 500 baseball for three months. And then Theo Epstein made the bold decision to trade uh, Nomar Garcia Parra, who was uh, the face of the franchise at the time. But what happened was, you know, if you remember, they tried to get a Rod mm-hmm. the, the off season before that, and actually had a deal in place where a Rod was coming to Boston, and um, Manny Ramirez was going to Texas. Uh, Nomar was going to Chicago for Baglio Ordonez. But then, and John Lester was going in that deal too, by the way, to the White Sox. But then this whole thing, the players union blew up the trade because um, A-Rod was going to decrease the value of his contract um, to come to Boston. And even though A-Rod was perfectly, uh, credit to him, by the way, he was, <laughs> he was, he was uh, perfectly willing to do that. But the players union said no, and then the trade got kiboshed. 
So then you see, uh, then you see A Rod go to the Yankees when Aaron Boone has the pickup basketball accident in the middle of the offseason. And then it's just crazy. And the team's kind of middling along and they're not playing very good defense. Um, Nomar had this mysterious Achilles injury in spring training that nobody, there was rumors that he got hit, that the team said he got hit by a ball in BP. Nobody ever saw it. There were rumors <laughs> it was a soccer accident. Uh, and then there was the, the thing that he just was unhappy because they tried to trade him the previous winter and he was sort of moping around a little bit. And then they, they traded him. Um, they traded him for um, for Doug McKavich and for Orlando Cabrera. And people said um, at the time, uh, the Red Sox just traded Nomar Garcia Parra for a couple of 240 hitters. Right? Um, nobody really knew much about McKavich or Cabrera. And then in the side deal, they get Dave Roberts. And the chemistry of the team just became perfect um, from that that July 31st trade. And by the middle of August, this became one of the best teams I've ever seen. Um, the 2018 Red Sox were the best team I've ever seen over a full season. The 2004 Red Sox for the last six weeks of a regular season, they were an absolute wagon. They just were firing on every cylinder. They had a loaded offense where they had guys like Bill Miller who had won the batting title the year before. I think he was hitting eighth or ninth a lot of the time. They had Jason Barrick hitting low in the order. And they had this ridiculous look uh, rotation where they had Pedro and Schilling and um, Derek Lowe had kind of a down year, but he was still Derek Lowe. And they had um, Tim Wakefield, who was always so solid and an up and coming Bronson Arroyo and also had a really good bullpen with, uh, with Keith Folk and Alan Emery and, and Mike Timlin. So they just had a lot of, they just didn't really have any weaknesses in, in 2004, but then lo and behold, you get to the ALCS against the Yankees, which is all they <laughs> wanted the whole time. And Schilling um, messes up his ankle and he got shelled in the first game. And that really set them back. And the next thing you know, they're down three games to none. And you're like, oh, my God, they're, they're not only um, isn't this going to be as good as last year when they lost in game seven to the Yankees. This is going to be worse than last year. And it just uh, something happened. They got a rain out um, that helped them that weekend between games two and three, I think it was. Um and then that enabled them that enabled them to reset their pitching a little bit because they because you remember the famous footage of Kevin Millar saying that we have um, you know if they can just don't let us okay. win Game Four because if they win Game Four then they have Pedro in Game Five now and that was only possible because of the rainout between Game Two and Three um, otherwise it would have been um, who would it have been uh, well it would have been Wakefield was going to go Wakefield probably would have been Game Five uh, at that point so just everything got. Uh, Everything got turned upside down, and then they did win that. Uh, they did win that game four, which was just um, an absolutely wild, uh, an absolutely wild game where they're, you know, three outs away from losing, and Dave Roberts steals the base, and Billy Miller drives him in, and Ortiz hits the walk off in the, in the twelfth inning, and those four days were the best uh, four days I've had covering the Red Sox. Uh, most exhausting, best, uh, most exciting, um, historic. You know, they did a whole ESPN, did a whole documentary on it, you know, four, four days in October um, because they were, there were no travel day because the rainout I just mentioned, they played the, the four games in succession. And I just remember after game five, um, it was a day game in the sense that it started at five o'clock, but it wound up being a six hour game that went 14 innings. So we're all just exhausted when we left the ballpark that night when Ortiz again won it on a walk off this time, a little, almost a little flare of a single up the middle. 
And, um, you know, we, we all trudged in New York the next day. And I just remember when I get to Yankee Stadium, everyone around the Yankees, whether it's Yankee Stadium employees, fans, um, they all seemed to be in disbelief that they were there. They never saw the series going to six games, and they all seemed kind of <laughs> depressed. And the Red Sox were just kind of like, let's go. You know, at that point, they totally they totally had it. And that's when the uh, Millar started the whole Jack Daniels thing and the um, – the, the clubhouse is what he, it was a rainy day and the Yankees would play these Yankeeographies um, during batting practice. And Millar, I know we were actually in the, we were actually talking to uh, Terry Francona and in, uh, in his office before that game. And Theo Epstein was in there too, I think. And Millar comes in and interrupts our meeting and just says, uh, Tito, just to let you know, we're hitting, we're hitting inside today. No more Yankeeography, none of this stuff. We're going to, we're going to hit inside. And, uh, Millar's like, okay, what our, uh, Frank Connor was like, okay, whatever you say. And that was the day the whole thing started with the Jack Daniels symbolic. Jack. So they did that. They won that night. <laughs> and then they, they, they did it. The Jack Daniels toast before uh, all the rest of the games and they, they never lost again. So um, we'll never forget that run. I remember just being completely on fumes in St. Louis. I mean, I'm going to bed at probably five in the morning after those four <laughs> games because you're writing so many stories. The games are going so long. Um, you're traveling. So just complete exhaustion. Um, and say, I was just, I just remember getting to say, I barely remember those two first game, those first two games at Fenway, but I just, just very distinctly remember in St. Louis being absolutely exhausted. Um, but then the game starts and you kind of ride the adrenaline and then um, game four of the world series, you just, um, you have this story you have to write and it's a historical story. So you have to, you sort of feel this pressure that you have to sort of live up to the magnitude of the story. So um didn't really realize what I had covered the, how crazy it was until a few weeks after that, when you're finally not exhausted anymore <laughs> and you see all these commemorative books and magazines coming out and it just kind of like, it just hits you like, wow, what did I just, you know, this thing that I just covered was, was unbelievable. So I'll never forget. Like I said, and that's why I kind of bookend 03 and 04 um, together as one thing it was just kind of two crazy seasons, all intertwined with the Yankees um, bunched into kind of one, uh, a book of two chapters. No, absolutely. That's probably because I know everyone thinks Yankees Red Sox biggest rivalry in baseball history. That's probably if you had to define a moment in that rivalry, it's that because that's the switch from when the Yankees dominated all the time and then 03's yeah. last moment and then all of a sudden 04 and I guess till now it's been Red yeah. Sox. Yeah, I mean, I think the only other time you can really compare it to is the whole, you know, I think 77 and 78, especially mm-hmm. 78 with the you know, the way that pennant race w- went with uh, the Red Sox leading by 14 games, the Yankees coming back and catching them, the Red Sox coming back, I think, to win their last seven or eight regular season games in 78 just to tie the Yankees. And then you have this just absolutely epic one-game playoff um, at Fenway, the Bucky Dent home run, but just like one of the best games ever played on a like a glorious uh, Monday afternoon in Boston. And those players, they those players legitimately, I think it was close to 04, you know, three, but those players in 78, they hated each other. Like Fisk didn't like Munson and, uh, you know, none of, none of, none of these guys uh, liked each other. So there was a real hatred, but then, yeah, at that point though, the rivalry was still very one-sided. The Red Sox hadn't beaten the Yankees in a game that counted really um, ever since Babe Ruth switched <laughs> sides. So yeah, Oh three and Oh four, the Red Sox were finally um, ready to stop kick, getting kicked around by their big brother. <laughs> And just kind of took it to them and went uh, toe to toe with those those guys, and it came down 
So, so if they're going to finally beat the Yankees, why not have it be come back from 3-0 <laughs> and have this like kind of cathartic game seven where you can actually just enjoy it because uh, Johnny Damon hits a grand slam in the, the uh, second inning of that game. And then I think he hits a, a two-run homer in the fourth inning. And then it's, uh, what was it? It was six to nothing or whatever by, uh, you know, by, or eight to nothing, I think, by like the fourth inning. So um, just just crazy stuff. But yeah, that, that was the pinnacle of the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. We've seen big games since then. I mean, it was still big in, in 05. Um, it was still big in some other years. But, they were, and you know, they played each other in the playoffs. And uh, what was it, 2018, they played each other in the division yep. series. They had the, the the wild card at Fenway in 21, the one game. So we've seen some them on big stages. But yeah, 3 4 that was the absolute pinnacle of, of Red Sox-Yankees. And I hope, you know, that someday people get to see that again because there was nothing more fun than than covering that, to tell you the truth. Absolutely. I was going to say the Red Sox-Yankees did battle a little bit in 23, but of course it was a battle for the basement and not a battle. Yeah, that wasn't that one wasn't <laughs> quite the same. Yeah, that was uh, that was the battle of uh, the Red Sox firing their chief baseball officer <laughs> the day before a Yankees-Red Sox doubleheader in which uh, – Tickets to the game were going for about a dollar or two on uh, StubHub because nobody wanted to see the Red Sox at the end of last season. So that, yeah, that was definitely that was definitely a different time. But yeah, we saw the uh, we saw the ultimate in 03 and 04. 100%. So I do. So we did just get into a little bit there that the season obviously did not go the way we wanted it to go this year for the Red Sox. So looking ahead a little bit, obviously there's already the rumors online of Otani and Soto and Yamamoto. And obviously every fan base right now is dreaming that that's going to be the result of their team. So what do you realistically think could be in store for the Sox this year? And maybe it is Otani, but no. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm kind of like, I don't, I'm cool on the Otani angle. I just don't think that um, the Red Sox really need to rebuild. If the Red Sox want to be in the playoffs next year, which I really think they do, and they want to make, and they want to be a legitimate playoff contender next year. Uh, they really need to rebuild their pitching staff. So I don't know if you can spend five, six hundred million dollars on Otani and make the pitching investments you need to. So I kind of think they're going to go all in on pitching this year, uh, and maybe uh, get a pretty good position player too, but not somebody quite the caliber of Otani. So I think Yamamoto is a good goal. I think that Jordan Montgomery is a good goal. Um, or maybe they get trade uh, creative and trade for a pitcher because there's such a supply demand issue with these pitchers um, where I think there's about eight or nine really good starting pitchers and there's about um, a bunch of teams need two of them. So, you know, you do the math. So, you know, you throw that in. So maybe, uh, you know, sign one pitcher for big money and maybe trade for another one. So I think that's, and, and get a, maybe a position player. Somebody's not expecting, um, so I think it it should be it should be a really good offseason. I think the Red Sox are going to be real players this year. You saw Bloom kind of deal on the fringes of on the fringes of free agency um, in his years with the Sox. I think that uh, ownership is mandated that they can now get more involved, and they got they got to get this team relevant again, especially in their own in their own marketplace. The Red Sox are distant between behind most of the other teams in town right now. I mean, I think. Um, the Celtics are the hottest ticket in town right now. The Patriots, even though they stink, <laughs> um, people are talking about them all the time just because they're the Patriots and Bill, Bill Belichick's uh, dynastic run is, is kind of coming to an end right now. So, um, yeah, the Red Sox need to get their seat back in this market. They want people talking about them on talk radio uh, all the time, like they used to when I first started covering the team and really until pretty re- recently. 
And people, you know, this 21 playoff run, people got caught up in that, man. Yeah. Um, this run they went on, nobody expected it. The whole Kyle Schwarber, Ron Kike Hernandez, that whole kind of team. Like, Pete, those fans are great. So this, it's not going to be hard to get the fans yeah. back, but they just need something. The last uh, two years, three out of the last four years have been really depressing to watch, uh, both from uh, off-field moves and on-the-field performance. So uh, I think 23 is the year they try to restore it and get people uh, excited about the Red Sox again. Well, absolutely. I know two of our behind-the-scenes guys, one's a big Red Sox guy, one's a big Yankee fan. They made a little bet at the beginning of the offseason that the Red Sox are going to sign or trade for a big player. And then, obviously, if one wins, one loses. And the barometer was set at Whit Merrifield. And then if it's a player <laughs> above Whit Merrifield, then the Red Sox fan wins. And if Whit Merrifield or lower is the biggest signing this offseason, then the Yankee fan wins. I think they're doing something with their facial hair, doing a beard or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So I think it's safe to assume that someone bigger than Whit Merrifield is going to be added to the Sox roster this offseason. Yeah, I would I would hope so. Because Whit Merrifield, and I love and I'm I'm the first to say because um I love Hard Bloom. Like I yeah. thought he was a, a great guy. He was really good to the media. It's really hard not to feel good personally about him, what kind of person he was. And professionally, some of the things he did rebuilding the farm system, um, that's probably going to be felt for a long time. Um, but I would say that Whit Merrifield would be kind of a Heimbloom type of move, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, so I think that they're um, they're on to bigger and better things now. Um, I think that they're gonna they're gonna think big this offseason. And so yeah, definitely uh definitely you're gonna see some somebody bigger than Whit Merrifield come into this team this <laughs> year. I think I think Nico will be crying if all of a sudden the big acquisition is Whit Merrifield this offseason. So we shall see what happens. But no, really excited for this offseason. Really grateful for you coming on and talking with us today, giving us all your knowledge, all your insight. And then the final question that we do have for all of our guests is sort of we continue the tradition of our guests usually get to nominate someone else in the baseball industry that they think would be a cool next person to have on the podcast, whether it's a fellow Red Sox reporter or anyone else in the industry that you think would be a cool next person to have on. I think um, Jen McCaffrey of uh, The Athletic. She's a voice that that people are hearing more of, and she has some really interesting takes on the, uh, on the Red Sox. So I think uh, I, w- I would nominate my friend Jen. I like it. Absolutely. But I had a blast talking to you today, hearing all about the Red Sox. Hopefully, if you'd love to come back on in the future, I'd be more than happy to have you on for a season preview or something like that. But no, really appreciate you stopping by here on a Friday night with me. Yeah, anytime, John. Good, great talking to you, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much for Dylan Campione and Ian Brown. Until the next time, the side is retired.